the last several weeks in the sermon series on the humble king and really looking at how true humility is nothing like how the rest of the world sees humility. We keep coming back to this quote by what, Will, William Temple and you know, give some grace to... Oh, there he is. Okay, yeah. I think some of the slides might be out of order, so give some grace to Pam for <laughs> dealing with all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, that was pretty quick, so I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're on track here. So... Basically, this quote, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself at all. And a lot of this sermon, we're definitely going to be you know, really hammering down on this idea of humility being freedom, but we'll definitely get into that. So today, we're in the Humble King series, specifically looking at ambition and making sure that we have a proper ambition, not only when we're looking at the spiritual gifts, but when we're looking at our life in general. So we're going to analyze what it means for Jesus to be the humble king, which may sound a lot like last week's sermon, which great setup there. And, <laughs> and then we're going to use that understanding to place our ambition towards the spiritual gifts in a proper focus, because that's really what we've been trying to get after the past you know, several months. We've been trying to get into sermon series after sermon series on the spiritual gifts, and things just keep coming up. You know, we need to focus on the fruit of the Spirit um, and so many other things. So let's not waste any time. Let's jump right into it. We're going to start with our first scripture reading, um, which should give us a really good picture of the rest of the sermon. It should help color you know, all the rest that we're talking about here. We're looking at Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And hopefully it doesn't seem like I'm falling off the rails too quickly, but we can't, it, it would be wrong for me to not answer the, the, the big question here of why did Jesus even need to go to the cross? So let's first get into that before we can really get into the, the real meat of the matter. Um, let's drink some spiritual milk as we get ready for um, the rest of what we have in store. Um, so as we should all know, the world's a broken place. And that should hopefully be pretty innately known that you know, things are not how we would hope them to be. Looking at Romans 3.23 and 6.23, um, there's going to be a lot of scripture that we're going to be covering. Um, but for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life and Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we deserve death, according to the law of life as we know it, then God would have to pay the price of our debt. We have a debt to pay, and no human can pay that debt because no human has any borrowing power left to be able to pay not only their own debt or anyone else's debt, any person, past, present, or future. That is why Jesus had to go to the cross. God being untouched by what we have broken had to enter into his own creation in the form of a man so that God could pay the price that only a human could pay. This is the gospel, and it is this sacrificial love that allows us to appreciate costly grace. This is what Bonhoeffer says on costly grace. And it's a, it's a pretty big quote, so I'm going to try and pause in between some pretty big points so we can truly appreciate what Bonhoeffer is saying here. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, 
For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his net and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such a grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Yet we were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Jesus was a servant. He came as a servant and as a man to show us how man should act. And that's really what we're getting at today. So going back up to that first quote that we had earlier about carrying our cross daily, now we can start getting into some better questions. I mean, not better questions, but other good questions. We, we, an obvious one is that Jesus carried his cross for one day, right? What does it mean for us to carry our cross multiple days? He meant something different. He, he really meant that as he is a servant, that we too are supposed to be servants. We are to put others before ourselves by being a servant as Christ did. Jesus was supposed to come as the glorious king we have been promised since the fall of creation, right? He was supposed to be that mighty king that comes in and annihilates the Romans and brings his kingdom upon the earth. But instead he came as a humble servant in his upside down kingdom where the leaders are servants and the servants are leaders. In our broken world, we would normally think of leadership as coming with power and authority. And of course, Jesus did come with power and authority. But instead, he models something completely different for us. Jesus did not embrace the privileges he had in being king over all creation. That is what we would have done. Instead, he shows us a different form of leadership that comes with a responsibility to love. And that love restricts our rights as leaders. There is so much more freedom for us to live within the providence of grace. And I'm going to have to explain that a little bit because getting to heaven is not like, oh, you have to fill out a test and get a good grade, and now you're in. All people have that freedom to walk into that. And so it gets complicated because grace is a little bit complicated because it, it's not as easy as us being able to acquire it. It's a free gift. And so, Jesus did not embrace those privileges. No. But if we want to become a leader, then we must give up some of our privileges in love. I got two examples for that. If someone is hurting, we no longer have the right, nor the freedom, to simply walk away because we are tired. As a church, we can try and be courteous, you know, and healthy about this. We have you know, allocated ministry times to be able to minister to people. But if there's a need, there's a need in love. 
Love calls us to action. Another example, if you're hosting a party at your house and someone is there who's sensitive about alcohol, then we lose the right to bring out a bottle of wine. And this really gets into the whole idea of, are we leaders? Love requires us to put others into focus. This carrying our cross is a daily effort we must remember in order to keep ourselves out of focus. True humility is inseparable from love. And this is, this is a hard topic. Um, now, this sounds like it might be rough and hard, um, but be comforted in that Jesus struggled with this. When he was setting his face on Golgotha, you know, he wept bitterly. He struggled with this. It was not easy for him. You know, usually the one person we would call the only humble person on earth. Even he struggled with it. So that should give us some confidence that we are not alone in our struggles, that Jesus is God with us in all these things. For a little bit more of a, maybe a, a down-to-home, pra- more practical example to help us sort of a, start to a, start this process of evaluating ourselves, um, I'm not looking for anyone to blurt out an answer, um, but definitely take note of what first comes to mind. Um, what are your immediate gut reactions? Um, everyone might remember that our church is part of the Vineyard USA and Russia partnership, which is kind of a big deal for our church, right? That we are sort of going over and ministering to those churches however way that we can. And it's difficult because there's a war now. And so if you remember a while back, we had a plan to go take a missionary trip to go you know, minister to those churches to really speak to them and partner with what God is saying to the Russian people. So let's play a little game and just let, let's just assume the war is over and that we can actually do that mission trip like we had planned. Now, we already had like a whole visa process lined up. Um, unlikely now, but I mean, play the game with us a little bit. Um, Let's also assume and imagine that God has asked you to go and that you have, discern- you have discerned and confirmed it to be true. Again, also ignoring how that's you know, most of the time very difficult and hard to you know, figure out, but l- let's say you know, God's asking you to go. Eternally, how do you feel? What, are your, what is your first and most likely very reasonable ideas that are coming to mind? Do you want to go? Or do you want to stay far away from there? Are you willing to give up your saved vacation time for such a long trip? Are you concerned about the money that you can't justify paying for it? You know, is it that Russia is a dangerous place? Um, and again, a lot of these things are very reasonable. reasonable. But let's also remember that Christ is our king. If he's telling us to go, are we just going to tell him no? If we are citizens of his kingdom, then is he actually our king with power and authority? Or is he just a nice idea that we like and would quickly discard when, the, when it becomes the cost too great? I do not want any of us to be stuck living a life based off of cheap grace. Some of you know what's coming. <laughs> uh, we, we must count the cost of a life spent on Christ. And this is something that's been coming up over and over again in our morning prayer and on you know, Monday and Friday nights, is that we, we need to count the cost of our salvation and take some of those things a little bit more seriously. 
And I mean, that should be an encouragement for us, that God is speaking and God is taking care of this church in an incredible way. <coughs> Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. For Christ to increase, we must decrease. And for a lot of people, what this really means is a call to self-sacrifice, or sacrifice in general. And that really deserves its own sermon. Um, we definitely don't have time for that, but I'll try and give it the, the honor that it deserves. Um, really, we, we must sacrifice ourselves, meaning that our pride, our goals, our future, everything must be subject to God's sovereignty. Our ambition must be for his kingdom, not our own. We are the side characters of God's story, not the main characters of our own. No, we're kind of used to that. We, you know, we preach on that quite a bit. But to be Christians, meaning that we are like Jesus Christ, we are required to change. This is the lifelong process called sanctification, that we are continuously being changed to be remade in the image of Christ. That means that who you are today ultimately is not the goal for the future. Our goal should be to change. We should not be comfortable where we are right now. And to really help this idea is the Israelite Feast of Tabernacles. If you're not too familiar with that one, basically every year you go through and you practice putting up a tent and having a feast under the tent. And it's a really beautiful festival, but really what it, what it really reminds us of is that we need to keep moving forward. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't get too comfortable where we are right now, and we should be ready to leave some things behind. And it's a yearly reminder to always go through with that. For Christ to increase... We must decrease. And before we move on from self-sacrifice, um, there's two more points I definitely want to cover um, just in case to make sure that we don't have false humility masquerading as true humility. And hopefully as a bonus, they should help us understand you know, the, the, prop, the, um, the practice of sacrifice a little bit more. Um, the first one is that Jesus did not lose his identity when he set his sights on Golgotha. It was this decision to head to the cross that exemplified who he was as a person. Him having such a love for other people was part of his identity. His self-sacrifice was the outcome of his identity, his identity, not the end to it. And we can say, well, I mean, Jesus died, right? It was the end of him. But when you have a love so powerful as Jesus, it's powerful enough to raise you from the dead. And that's a bigger message for us. Sacrifice does not take your identity away. When we get ourselves out of the way in order to focus on others, we acquire our identity as servants in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the double meaning of Matthew 16, 25 through 26. You've, you've probably read this verse a bunch of times and maybe been a little bit confused by it. Um, there's a double meaning here. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. It was the love of God that raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. If we have the same love of God that raised Jesus from the dead, we can be confident that we too shall be raised from the dead. And then point two. And let me take a little pause here to make sure 
we're paying attention to this because I think this is really important when we're when we're dealing with self-sacrifice and being a false humility. When we sacrifice something, our understanding of it is that it goes away. That is not always the case. Looking at Leviticus, some of the animal sacrifices were eaten as meals. They didn't just take the animal, sacrifice it, and it was gone. Specifically, I'm talking about the peace or free will offerings. This is, yeah, Leviticus 7, 15 through 16. The meat of the sacrifice of his peace offering of Thanksgiving must be eaten on the day he offers it. None of it may be left until morning. If, however, the sacrifice he offers is a vow or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day he presents his sacrifice, but the remainder may be eaten on the next day. Again, a lot of this kind of deserves its own sermon. Um, we're going to be glossing over a lot of it. But this was a sacrifice that the person was able to, to enjoy themselves. Sacrificing that animal from their possession was practically no different from any other meal they would have eaten, other than that it was prepared by a priest rather than either themselves or a local butcher. It was still regarded as a sacrifice because of the worship and declaration of God's faithful provision for their life. And now for a bit of a broader talk topic, which is definitely deserving of its own sermon, but hopefully I can give it some honor. Looking at Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That one's definitely a loaded topic. But the thing we need to note here is that Abraham did not lose Isaac despite being asked by God to sacrifice him. Our understanding of sacrificing is wrong. Abraham gave his son over to God and God gave Isaac back to Abraham. God had to do this in order to ensure that Isaac did not become an idol for Abraham. Abraham's ambition would have then been towards protecting his son rather than submitting to God's plan for the, hum for the future of humanity. And as you no know, Christians, you no know, saying that you no, know, we are the faith of Abraham, that's kind of a big deal for us, right? Abraham would have gotten caught up worshiping the miracle instead of the miracle worker. It is not easy for us to understand when God asks us to sacrifice something that we think is good or even something that is good. Abraham could only bear it because he had the faith to trust God at his word when God promised that Isaac was going to have many children after him. According to Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And this is before anyone had any theology about any sort of raising from the dead or resurrection. This was like the first. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. If we try and hold on to something, even a good thing, we can twist it into something unhealthy. Sacrificing is about letting go of something to not hold it so tightly, as we prayed in morning prayer, which is excellent for that, as is to withhold it from God. We can have boldness and confidence to trust God with our lives because we know that he is good. And then now that we've talked a little bit about proper ambition, we can now look at the spiritual gifts and see those and see how, how much more attainable they are through proper ambition. If you remember this verse, um, actually this collection of verses from when Leah did a sermon a while back on the spiritual gifts, um, from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through, 8, uh, 1 through 3, 8 through 10, 12 through 13, I would have loved to 
have all the rest of that in there, but definitely need to cut something. Um, this is a big chunk of scripture. But if I'm Sunday school teacher, I love scripture, so let's go. Uh, <laughs> if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all min- mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I have gained nothing. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. When we see face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know in full. Even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We must have a healthy and proper ambition toward the spiritual gifts. And that understanding that our place as servants is what we need to be able to seek those out properly. If not, we might find ourselves to be foreigners in heaven trying to catch up to the purpose of it all. For example, we should never make the spiritual gifts part of our identity as Christians. We all want to hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. But when the work is done, we need to ask ourselves whether we would actually be happy. If you're a teacher and there's no longer students to teach, are you a teacher anymore? If you're a missionary, are you a missionary if all bow their knees to Christ? I don't think heaven looks like a place full of puffy clouds and a dude that looks like Zeus. That's called Mount Olympus. It's an actual place. You can go visit. You can get a plane ticket and go to Greece. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, you can actually go visit that place. This is what most of the world thinks heaven looks like. And maybe it's true. But I think heaven looks slightly different. We actually get to live life like we were meant to live. Will a transition be easy for you? Heaven will make more sense if you understand love and servanthood. So, the ambition towards the spiritual gifts must begin with the love of God first, above all else. From Matthew 22, 37-40, and 1 Peter 4-8. through Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love the Lord or love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And then from 1 Peter, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So here's the thing. If you have no direction from God, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, if you don't know what to do to be a part of the church, then choose to love. You cannot fail by doing so. And even if so, then there is grace because of love. When you love God and draw closer to his heart, you should expect to have your heart breaks for the things that break his. This is the cost of love and ministry. 
that you would join God in rejoicing during good times and mourning with him during the bad. Look at the prophets, especially the Son of Man. These were all very sorrowful positions because they were able to see people hurting despite pretending as if everything's okay. And that's how the world works. They go on trying to puff up their shoulders, make sure everything looks great while knowing it's it, while, while knowing that it isn't. And it is a grace for us not to see God's heart in full. And that might sound like I said that wrong. Let me say it again. It is a grace for us to not see God's heart in full. For we would not be able to bear it. When we partner with God, he gives us the strength to bear those ministries. We bear a piece of his heart as necessary to give us the boldness and the power to go out. If something is spiritually laying heavy on your heart, it is likely the call of God towards ministry. Be strengthened in your ambition. And if you cannot bear that struggle before you, then it is not your struggle to bear. Now, we have this prayer channel on Slack. If you can't handle a prayer, the whole point of that prayer channel is not to have more voices praying to God. God doesn't hear us because we have more people praying than other churches. That's to help us not bear our burdens alone. If we're a community, we bear our burdens together. And if you lack boldness in your ministry, maybe you lack love. Pray for those around you, and you will find more and more that you now have a love for them. Another final note, we also need to be very careful of our expectations when it comes to the spiritual gifts. We have 2 Kings 5, 9 through 12. And this is... Um, don't remember quite who Naaman is, but basically a guy that's coming to Elisha and asking for healing for leprosy, which is an awful illness. If you're watching online, do not show pictures or do not Google search pictures. Oh, okay. You're looking at pictures then. Anyways. <laughs> so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elijah sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. I mean, he didn't even come to the door, but oh well. Maybe a little insulting. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He, his expectations stopped him from experiencing his personal miracle. It was right there in front of him. He was being commanded by Elijah, one of the most powerful prophets in all the land. And he knew that. There's a reason he came all this way just to talk to him. He was willing to run away because his personal miracle didn't look like how he wanted it to look. Maybe you would deny medical treatment based off of horrific side effects, but the dude just really needed to have the faith to wash in a different river. That doesn't cost us much. It might sound petty, but that's what our pride does. It gets in the way of our spiritual gifts. But that's what pride and expectation does all the time. If you are a person of pride, it might help to work on breaking that pride. It will help you to see the spiritual gifts more. Don't live a life like Naaman. 
And then also, if you are someone who incessantly prays for God's direction, then you are likely someone who misses out on this this supernaturally natural life. This is something Josh preached about a while back. If you expect direction from God to come with a mystical explosion, then be ready to be disappointed. God provides his signs, but we reject them, asking him just one more time to tell us again in a bigger way. If God had to be any more plain, what is the point of us even being a part of his ministry, of his work? This might sound harsh, but we should be encouraged by the fact that God desires deeply for us to be a part of his ministry. Therefore, this work must in part be something that we can actually do. God is more than capable of causing crazy explosions, but instead he intentionally does things differently with us so that not only that we can grow through trials, but because he desires to do so, just as a parent cherishing time with his children. We must accept the mundane to walk alongside God. I'm not saying that any of this is easy. I mean, this is the tough work of tilling up the rocky, hard soil of our, of our faith. But it's a process that lasts a lifetime. It's sanctification. And as you go through the process of sanctification, you might be exactly where God wants you right now, but you got to be ready in the future. You might, be re- you might need to pick up your tent and move someplace else. It's a process, and we need to be ready to move along with the process. Here's the most no-hype, no-manipulation sort of call to ministry that I can give. Come forward and become the gospel. If you do not know Jesus, like personally experiencing his presence in your life, then you need Jesus. Working towards anything else has no worth. If you struggle with pride or an improper ambition, come forward and say so. The power of confession is powerful in its effect and reveals that your love is greater than what holds you back. And if you want to know God's heart in your ministry, also come forward and ask for prayer.